Well, it's my great pleasure today on now a major motion picture to introduce the screenwriter and novelist David Rich, who I've known for some time. And David spent a lot of time in Hollywood working in television and movies. He uh, proceeded to then write novels. He wrote two really well-received novels political crime novels about a character named Raleigh Waters, which I enjoyed very much. I think that's how I first met David. And more recently, he has written, I guess you would call it a historical spy novel, The Mirror Palace, which deals with the life of the explorer, the adventurer, the writer, Richard Burton. Uh, it, it, It summons up memories of all those great films set in the desert like Lawrence of Arabia and all of those wonderful adventure films. Now, David, I I wanted to ask you a question. I I ask a lot of people who are both movie lovers and book lovers. If, If I was to say for the rest of your life, you could only read books or watch movies, which one would you pick? Oh, you're starting off at the hard, with the hard <laughs> one. This one stumps both of us as well. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'd miss the movies, but I'd have to say books uh, because I can spend so much more time with the books. And and the complexities and and the different ins and outs, uh, the movies I can memorize, and I you know I've practically memorized a lot of movies. Right, that's a good question. Wow. Yeah, you know it's interesting. They, somebody asked Pauline Kael that question once. You know the great film critic, and she said she would have to choose books, basically for the same reason. You just said, you know, that it, it, it's so much a part of your imaginative life, your intellectual mm-hmm. life, that she felt she would have to give preference to books. You know, fortunate, fortunately, we don't ever have to make that choice. We, we right. both. But I know, David, in, in your work as a writer, that there is a movie influence, you know. And, and I was wondering, are there a few key movies that, you know, really influenced you, that really hooked you when you were growing up? I, I know you and I have, have spent some time uh, talking about the British invasion of the 60s, but I wonder if there were a couple of films that really, you know, were the triggers. Well, so many. Uh, you know, I can tell you the first movie I saw, you know, was yeah. those Old Yeller. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one of my first, too. It was... I remember coming home and my mother, who was a movie fan, said, did you like it? I just said, when can we go back? <laughs> you know, neighbors had taken me. So I, um, but, you know, you mentioned the British pictures, you know, Morgan, of course, we yeah. discussed. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I was crazy for Lawrence of Arabia. Me too. And then I was a big, again, like so many people this generation, you know, HUD, the Hustler, right, uh, and then of course you know the, the Streetcar Named Desire, where some of the filmed plays, right, 
um, one that really changed me, you know, I didn't know it ex- was uh, Look Back at Anger. Yes. I, I remember sitting up and going, wow, so what's this? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's interesting to me that so many people like baby boomers, like myself and yourself, you know, connected with those British films. And I never quite figured it out. I know that, you know, there was that British invasion of the 60s where everything British was super hot, and whether it was in music or fashion or movies. And, and I also, in my own case, there was a UHF station in Philadelphia, which somewhere in the mid to late 60s obtained a package of a ton of those British movies. So, uh-huh. you know, I just I, I, I just responded right away. I'm not sure why exactly. Right. Well, one reason, I think, is the Hollywood movies of the 50s with the Technicolor. First of all, yeah. a lot of Technicolor was ugly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And off-putting and false. Yes. And then a lot of the melodramas just didn't speak to people our age. Right. So when you saw Saturday night, Sunday morning. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> is, you know, even though I didn't live a life like that. Right. Right. You know, it was, you understood the emotions a lot better. You believed them. It's true. You know, the one that really grabbed me, I, I must have been, I don't know, 13 or 14, and I did see it the first time on this UHF station, was The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Oh, God. I was so stunned by the ending of that film. It was, as you say, so out of character with Hollywood that it just it blew my mind as a, as a young teen. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And to go back to your first question, you know, books or movies, I, I keep a copy of Silito short stories right. that I read over and over and over. Uh, again, the emotion is what you remember and, and you want to, you know, grab onto and, and sort of, uh, you know, rub your back with. So, yeah. What about your, your interest in uh, Sir Richard Burton, uh, who, as we stated, is the, uh, the topic of your latest novel, The Mirrored Palace, where you're obviously a bit of an Anglophile, to say the least. Where did that interest originate? Was that through either books or, or film or, or was it just history, British history? How did that begin with you? I did my junior year in college in Cardiff, Wales, and uh, the whole year. And there was a BBC uh, miniseries, a docu-series about Alan Moorhead's book. Alan Moorhead had written uh, Blue Nile and White Nile. Right. White Nile goes into uh, Burton and his partner speak. I think we got John speak was his first uh, attempt to discover the source of the Nile. And I remember sitting there just enthralled by Burton. And so I was in. So since college, I've been interested in Burton. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought there's been movies. There was mountains of the moon, which also dealt with his search for the Nile. A terrific film. We, <clears throat> Joe and I, have spoken about it. We both love that movie. <laughs> and and there's, I think, another BBC series, a dramatization of what happened between Burton and Speak when they came back to England, and and it was quite vicious. Uh, Burton felt Speak had betrayed him. I had another vision of Burton, you know, always, and I was always searching, how can you do it? But the Hodge 
the danger is implicit, right? If, if he's discovered, he'll be killed. Yep. But it isn't a specific danger. It isn't a, I had to find something he was questing for that was going to drive him further into danger. That's what, how you make drama out of it. Sure. So I happened to be reading, you know, wasting time on the internet. His niece, I, something I didn't know, had written that he had fallen in love. This was before he went. He'd fallen in love with a Persian woman, and it was the love of his life. And when her parents discovered the affair, they killed her. Wow. And I said, well, the guy translated The Thousand and One Nights, and I always read those stories. Yeah. And I said, mm, that's something. If that happened to the guy who's in The Thousand and One Nights, how does that story work out? Mm -hmm. Right. And I said, now I have it. I'm combining that with the Hajj, and I could do something with that. So how much, how do you approach the research when you're right? You're, you're sort of, I mean, you're telling a story that's a bit of a fictional account, but it's based on factual information. And this, uh, obviously there's a lot of documentation on Burton. Uh, do you, do you tend to do all the research and get that done prior to structuring your book and your narrative and sitting down and writing it? Or do they sort of coexist at the same time? What's your process oh. for that kind of thing? Oh, I wish I could do all the research in advance and then just sit down and write. <laughs> Right. How how nice that would be. I'm not an organized person. Right. And I'm I'm impatient. So I I will get in and make notes and make notes and make notes. And go, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. And then I'm not really ready. And then you know, I'll start again and start right. again. And then I'm, you know, fifty or a hundred pages in and I see that I've got to stop. You know, just for a day or two and research something else and uh, little things. I was writing something in, in set in France today mm -hmm. and uh, I had to stop and, and look at, you know, what town they're going to drive through and research the town and do that kind of stuff. And that's just the process for me. Do you enjoy that part of it? I mean, is it sort of a necessary evil? You got to get this information correct and everything, or do you actually really enjoy the research part of it? I love it. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, you read about uh, Frederick Forsyth or somebody else who has researchers. Yes. And, and I don't understand how he can trust someone else because you find such little things along the way that suit you and suit the drama. David, would it be safe to say that there is a, a, a sort of a movie aura hanging over this book? I mean, while I was reading it, you know, with the sandstorm and, uh, you know, I thought of Lawrence and with the idea of someone dying twice, not literally, but figuratively, I thought of Hitchcock. I mean, do, do you feel that movies do influence your novel writing? Oh, certainly. There's no question. You mentioned, you know, uh, Stories set in the desert and, and yep. uh, always, uh, besides Lawrence of Arabia, I have an entire theory about movies that uh, has nothing to do with story. that has to do with setting. Yes. And uh, in general, desert movies, that's one reason I love cowboy movies and John Ford movies. I love movies set in the desert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so... 
certainly that was, you know, part of the affection I had. And then, you know, I love adventure stories. Yes. I'd originally thought of this as a movie uh, and pitched it. Mm -hmm. And I'd never got a better response to a pitch ever. Mm -hmm. But it's a difficult one to sell. You have to get to exactly the right people at the right time to sell that. I think right. so. Mm -hmm. That idea of the desert, though, when you talk about first movies, a movie that I think was one of the first movies I ever saw was the John Wayne Sophia Loren movie, Legend of the Lost, which is uh -huh. a, a desert adventure. And I think that kind of made me a fan of that kind of movie for the rest of my life. Oh, I believe it. For sure. I'm a big sure. Ford fan myself. He's, uh, he's yeah, oh, big time. Yeah. Uh, so no, I can see, I can, I can even definitely see it's, it's a, it's a different desert, but the, the epic scope of yeah. these stories that we're talking about, whether it's Ford and the searchers and, and my, yeah. old, my darling Clementine, and we could go on and on or, uh, what you're talking about in, uh, you know, in the, in the mirrored palace, they definitely have a very similar appeal. Um, You've, you've written for the page, you've written for the screen, and you've written for the stage as well. I'm curious, just uh, once again, it's sort of a process question, but uh, do you do you find it difficult to shift between the, the three mediums? Do you have a different approach to each one, or are they very similar? Um, do you outline for one or, or and not the other, or how do you juggle those, those three different mediums? Well, uh, let me start at the end there with the outlining. Again, I'm not an organized person, so I'll start an outline all the time. And, and it's, you know, some notes, you know, this, 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 this. And uh, eventually the outline, if you look at it, says something like this. says uh, veggie wonton and uh, shrimp fried rice. <laughs> because my wife has called and said, what's what, what I should pick up for dinner. Right. And it has a note of, you know, the, the phone number for the exterminator, and it has all that stuff. And then I just go on to get ready. But I just think of it as, as just work. When you start any project, let's say you only write novels. Right. Or only, well, other than say plays. Neil Simon said that every time he sits down to write a play, he has to learn how to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And it's, for me anyway, if I said I've written probably 35 screenplays, if I sat down to write a screenplay, I'd have to learn how to do it all over again. Right. And you sort of accept that that's part of the process and, and part of the job. So each one, you switch between them. The plays, my original ambition was to be a playwright. Uh-huh. And, and I told you, look back in anger, just I read... John Osborne over and over again yeah. and watched his plays and seen some great productions of them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I will structure uh, a novel uh, as a play just to get started, just mm -hmm. to get me going. So I know there's drama. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I fall into that category of novelist who wants drama. Some novelists, I think, uh, are very able with words, but are bores. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Try not to be a bore. <laughs> now, David, I hear, you know, you hear 
forever in Hollywood, you know, the horror stories of the position of the writer in, in Hollywood. And I wonder, I always wonder when somebody writes novels as well. I mean, was it, was it the case with you that the novel writing grew out of frustration with Hollywood or was it just a completely separate thing? It was, uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, here's how it went with, uh, I wasn't selling much. And I pitched a good story to my agent, and he, mm-hmm. he said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. you got to change it, change it, change it. And I reworked it, and I met with him for breakfast. And three sentences in, he started in with, no, no, no. I was very frustrated. I had another idea, and that the thought of pitching it to him made me sick. Yeah. And I said, you know, you're getting older. You know, always, you know, thought about writing a novel. Either you do or you don't. So give it a try. It's a good story. I really like the story. The, you know, the first Raleigh Waters novels. Yeah. I really, I said, you know, I don't want to toss this away. And something, you know, you write a screenplay, and especially if your agent isn't into it, mm-hmm. might be three or five or eight people read it all together. Right. And then it's gone. Or let's say somebody likes it and they option it and they pay you to rewrite it and they don't set it up. You know, it never happens again. So now 20 people have read it and you've got a little, you got money, but not getting rich. Yeah. And it's over. They own the, you know, the character, you're, you're screwed. So I, I thought I'd try it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that the model for filmmaking seems so different in Hollywood versus Europe, you know, where in Europe you have this longstanding tradition of the writer-director, you know, with the director presumably protecting what he's written, whereas in Hollywood, that doesn't seem quite as common. It seems like producers and directors engage writers and then, you know, run with it. You know, why do you think that sort of division the cold? Well, it's hard to know. It, Hollywood, you know, deserves some credit. Is they were able to ramp up this amazing machine yep. to make tons and tons and tons of movies and many, many good ones. Yeah. And there's so much business involved. Mm-hmm. And writing is a solitary thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when a director is not directing. He's got to have something to do. He's talking to producers. He's talking right. to other the actors. He's doing, you know, which is partially the work of the producer. They're out there, writers that got somebody's got to sit home alone and, and do this. So I think that's how it developed. If, if you want to, though, sell your, your script in Hollywood for more money, always say you want to direct. <laughs> if they love your script, right, they'll pay you more to not direct it. Right. Have you had any? You you have had uh, your screen your screenplay have gone into um, it made it to the big screen and the small screen as well. Have you had any experience on the or any interest? And if you haven't had the experience in the production end of it, were you were you a writer on set in any of these circumstances, or uh, is it one of those things you you know 
turn it over, take the money and, and glad, you know, and, and put it in, glad to put it in somebody else's hands. Well, I, I was on the set uh, a number of times for a number of movies, not for the full length of the shoot. I'd say for Renegades, I was there for a few weeks. Uh, there wasn't a lot of changing to do, but there were other low budget pictures uh, where I was around uh, where, yeah, I'd have to change stuff on the fly. But I didn't do any work as a producer, except I spent about two years as a director of development for George England Productions at Warner Brothers. So I was the other side of the desk, and meeting with writers, finding scripts, going through books that we might option, pitching all this to the networks and the studios. So uh, that side of production, I, I did for a few years. And did you enjoy it, or do you do you prefer to be, as you say, it's writing, you know, the beginning of it, the solitary profession. Do you prefer one or the other? Had you rather be in your in your studio doing your writing, or did you find it a good experience, an enjoyable experience to be on the set? Well, I was. I much prefer being a writer, and I was. I went into it. I was a writer, and I met. I ran into someone I knew who was working for George, George England. And he said, we need somebody. I mean, show me, let me show a script to George. George liked the script. I went out there. They had money uh, to do, uh, uh, they wanted to do a movie about uh, the making of the atomic bomb. This is before Batman and Little Boy. Uh-huh. But did a tremendous amount of research and turned it into a long, long, long treatment, probably 50 pages everything and nothing came of it. And, uh, I think George liked having me around and said, why don't you, you know, become our development person. That's fine. You know, but I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) And he wasn't, he was busy with many things and I had to sort of figure it out as I went. And, and it was, you know, he would, he would demand, I would pitch to, let's say, uh, the CBS executive, an ABC executive. I pity both of them. We were paying for the lunch. So it was me and, and Michael Greenberg, who was the president of the company. And, and uh, George demanded six stories. He said, that's, that's what you got to go to. And he didn't want the two-line pitch. George wanted the full thing worked out. Oh, man. So, so I'd go into, into these lunches and, and, you know, do a good... 10 minutes, 15 minutes on six stories while we ate lunch. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. They still talked to me though. So I guess it was okay. I'll tell you <laughs> funny stories. One of them, a guy came on the lot. I don't know how we were at Warner brothers and a, a guy came on the lot and he came into the office and he was a, a Stan Laurel super fan. Right. And he'd written a book about Stan Laurel's life. Mm-hmm. And would you read it? Would you read it? Would you read it? And, and, you know, I know everybody's saying no to the guy. And I said, yes. And, and there was something in there that I thought was terrific. I thought that, oh man, you could reshape this into a really good movie. Mm-hmm. So I, I reshaped it and I pitched it to the guy at ABC. And, you know, 10 days goes by and he, he calls me up and he says, well, I have good news and bad news. So, okay, you know. Tell me the good news first. He said, we tested Stan Laurel, and it tested the highest ever. Wow. 
best reaction we've ever got. I said, that's great. He said, I said what's the bad news? And, and Brandon Stoddard ran the network. Right. He said, Brandon's not a fan. Mm. I said, well, why didn't you just ask Brandon first? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was that side of the desk. It's, it's a lot of frustration. And, uh, because, uh, George was close with, uh, Paul Newman and Martin Brando, uh, people would come in with stories for Newman and Brando. Right. George knew this was a waste of time. You know, he knew the business inside out and it was, don't come to them with stories, come to them with finished scripts. Mm-hmm. So he'd say, David will talk to you about your story. <laughs> and that would be my job, would be to sort of, uh, you know, go through that. This is the stuff that had you running back to your typewriter and your novel, you know? Yeah, very much. Yeah, very much. You know, I, I got out of there. That's when I wrote my first play when I was done with that. And uh, I was just so eager to, to do it. <laughs> Do you have any favorite uh, adaptations of things that have gone from from books to either the big screen or the small screen? Any any that really jump out at you as things that worked really really well on both, or any that didn't work well on uh, on both? I'll tell you that I think the best, most underappreciated adaptation I think is Icarus File, oh. uh, which is an excellent book, yep. but a big mess in some ways. It jumps all over the place. So he's in Lebanon. He's in the South Pacific. He's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, fascinating. And these screenwriters, and that might have been a budgetary thing. Yes. Found a way to rewrite that, throw out so much of the book, and emphasize the character and make this fantastic movie. You know, one of the great spy movies ever. That's a terrific adaptation. And then uh, here I am just talking about British things all the time. And, and <laughs> uh, Tom Jones, which I've watched again for the 200th time recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. take that book and put it into, it's only a two hour and 20 minute movie or something. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And to hold the tone. And, and it was fantastic adaptation. Uh, yeah. And I read it much later after I saw the film and I wasn't, I was impressed by what uh, Osborne and Richardson had done. You know, the, the whole style was so modern in that film at the time. And yet it was so true to what the story was about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, tone is so important. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, the idea when you're adapting something, you're adapting the idea, not the actual document. Right. And, and, you know, if you see these, uh, some of the Philip Roth adaptations or adaptations of his books and how they fail. Yeah. Despite the books being so great. Yeah. I think the writer, the screenwriters are afraid. Oh, I'll give you the, my best example. Right, somebody's got to work up the balls to do great Gatsby on the screen. And I'm sorry to say it. Nick Carraway is a minor character. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it so that. You invent stuff about Gatsby, stuff that Fitzgerald didn't give us. So we, get, we can get into Gatsby's. And the, the failure of the Gatsby movies is that it's the great Gatsby, and we don't know any more about him at the end than we knew at the beginning. 
<laughs> it's interesting how many times, of course, this podcast is really about the, the transition from the page to the screen. It's amazing how often Gatsby comes up. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it absolutely does. And we've had other shows where it just comes up and, yeah. and it, it's yeah. uh, it seems it's a bit of an enigma. Uh, I think you just had a really, a really good idea uh, as to why it hasn't been successful yet. But, it, uh, you know, it seems to be a head scratcher for a lot of people over the years in right. Hollywood. You got it. This is a, you know, a problem with, uh, you know, if you write a script in Hollywood, most often if it has voiceover and you're young and, you know, you haven't won the Academy Award, yes. you're going to sit in a producer's office or an agent's office and say, ah, oh, it's got voiceover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're not wrong. Mm-hmm. It, it, it changes so much. It, it doesn't do what you want it to do. Most often. Sometimes it does, but some, often it doesn't. Yeah. Well, one other really good adaptation. Don't let me, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, Stop the Rain. Oh, I love that movie mm. from Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's a movie that not enough people know about. I agree. I have not seen that movie. Oh, again, again, speaking of the British invasion, that was directed by Carl Rice, the wonderful director of Morgan and other other British movies. It's one of the best Vietnam movies, I think. Fantastic. A great script. Judith Rasko wrote that script. Mm. It's just terrific. Mm. Yeah, I want to pull that one out and and watch it again. What's great about the bad adaptations of good books, I have found, is that that those adaptations tend to disappear. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who aren't aware that there are movies of Rabbit Run and Personally <laughs> Complaint out there. <laughs> they open and close, and, and they're never seen or talked about. So the writer didn't suffer the really the indignity of a terrible movie being widely seen based on the <laughs> film. <laughs> right. <laughs> For which they are very, very grateful. Are you back? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting. You bring up, you know, in the instance of Tom Jones, when you talk about, you know, one thing that we've discussed here is how there seems to not even be a correlation. There have been, you know, small movies made out of epic books, and there have been epic movies made out of small books, yeah. uh, and it, and it can work. So there doesn't it's very often doesn't even seem to be a correlation. And you know, we've seen great epic movies made out of small no, novellas, you know. 30-page stories or something. Man Who Would Be King. Yeah. You know, it's probably a 50-page story, and then you yeah. get this fantastic, huge, huge, huge movie. Yeah. Another great adventure film. Absolutely. Yeah. Sort of along the lines of The Mirrored Palace, very much so. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, David, we could we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we, we want to let you go. We are so appreciative of you taking this time. Well, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this. This is good. It was a real pleasure. We really enjoy your work. Thank you. Take care of yourself. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.